0: Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a good buddy of mine, Jason Rink, on to talk with me about some really cool stuff. Jason is an award-winning producer and documentary filmmaker. He's a business consultant for direct marketing firms and the director of two upcoming films, Q Sent Me and The Steel. In his spare time, he helps out as a board member for the Libertarian Christian Institute. Jason, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, what's up, man? Yeah. I don't have that much spare time to help out with uh, LCI, (laughs)
0: but I try. You do well for us, man. Thank you. So I wanted to have you on because it's kind of good timing with the Rittenhouse trial results a few weeks ago as of this recording and even, you know, release of this episode. It seems like the media... And this is going to sound kind of funny for anybody listening. It seems like the media is telling us what to believe about things before we actually know the facts. And I think that's been very apparent because of the Rittenhouse trial. And, you know, we've watched people on Facebook admit that they didn't even know that the three people he shot were white. They didn't realize that half of the facts that they were told by the mainstream media over a year ago were not even correct at all and that he was actually acting out of self defense. There's like maybe 1% wiggle room to doubt a couple small pieces of the of the case, but like for the most part everybody got it wrong before they knew what happened. And so the media slant, like we kind of libertarians and conservatives and even some leftists kind of are like yeah, the media's a little biased or whatever, but it feels like in the last few years and especially in the last 2 years since the pandemic started that the mainstream media or whatever name we want to call it has an interest in shaping the narrative for everybody. Right. And so I want to get your take on what do you think the state of the union, so to speak, is with respect to the media and how it communicates to the average citizen?
1: Yeah, man, this is like a very broad topic. And there's a lot of different, I think, rabbit trails we can go down.
0: You know, let me speak personally,
1: a little bit about my experience around this in a couple of different ways before I talk about, you know, like the larger issue and what I think many people are experiencing for the first time, perhaps in America right now over the last couple of years. So, you know, I have been somebody that has been a consumer of what would be called alternative media for a very long time. I mean, you know, I cultivated my inner Alex Jones very early on. I mean, my father (laughs) gave me books to question the media. My dad was a journalist. He was an enlisted person in Vietnam, but he was also a journalist for like, you know, Stars and Stripes, I believe, like the military journals, right? Mm -hmm. And he would always tell me about what he wasn't able to write, you know, in those publications to the enlisted men, right? So, it was like, you know, the censorship that was happening within the military, you know, my dad would always talk about that. He would talk to me about the censorship in media, even, you know, this is many, many decades ago. And so, I have always had a strong skepticism towards the official story, quote unquote, and I've never been Super trustworthy of media. And in fact, even prior to COVID, I've always been somebody who's very been very skeptical of science, frankly, because I always believed that a lot of the money that was funding science was coming from, you know, the government in direct or indirect ways. And so I've got deep skepticism and have for many, many years around the media. And understand that, and then understand that I've even been quite shocked over the last several years about what I've seen and how the media, you know, corporate press, whatever you want to say, the regime media, however we want to term it, has been more about narrative generation and creation rather than reporting of facts. And so I think if me as somebody with already deep skepticism looks at the last couple of years and, and I'm actually a little bit surprised at how bad it's gotten I try to put myself in the shoes of somebody who didn't have that deep skepticism going into it and what they're experiencing. Mm. And so one thing for me that I've come to believe, or i I think is evident to me, and this tracks along with the concept of the cathedral that has been popularized by, you know, Curtis Yarvin, and Michael Malice as well, around this idea that there exists this arm of the state or this combination of the state, and a religious dimension of propaganda, which used to be the church, actually. So the state and the church, and I don't want to say the true church, but like the compromised church, but religious people and religious institutions throughout history used to work hand in hand with the state to sort of keep people in line and help people to think a certain way about the state. That was a a relationship that has existed for many, many centuries. What happened is that started to break down. The church started to not have, have influence. And so it got replaced by essentially academia and media. That has now become sort of the religious arm of the cathedral, which then works to shape the minds of people to get people to act and respond in a certain way when it comes to the state or supporting the state, or, you know, for example, voting, people are convinced they're using their free will, but it's it's actually, their minds have been shaped through the narrative creation of the cathedral to do a certain thing, to believe a certain thing, and then take a certain kind of action on behalf of the state. And so, I don't know how that's going to sound to <laughs> the, the average listener of the show, yeah. but it's this idea that we're not just talking about this thing where it's like, oh, you have a couple of people, you know, at these networks who are like paid by big pharma or, you know, whatever, or, you know, they're, they're compromised or they're corrupt or anything like that. No, no, it's much deeper. What's actually happening is that the state has joined up with the media and academia in order to promote certain ideas and a certain worldview. And it's not only promoted, but it's subsidized by the state and then corporate interest in order to do this. And this has been true for a long time, but I don't think people have really recognized it. And I think for many Americans, what has happened over the last two to four years is this started to manifest itself more obviously, partially because we have this alternative way of receiving information now called the internet, which has changed the whole game. It's made it much more difficult for the cathedral to shape the minds of people through traditional mechanisms. And so I've just kind of ranted a bunch right there. I'd love to open it up and respond or react to what I said. Well,
0: to channel my inner Kathy Newman for a second. So you're telling me that this Thanksgiving, you were really thankful to Al Gore for inventing the internet.
1: Exactly, I was yes, he <laughs> yeah, I mean <laughs> and and it, it's interesting, man, because, like this whole internet thing's been around for a while, but, you know, I was involved in Ron Paul's campaign in two thousand and eight, and Facebook didn't exist for the math, like, for regular people at that point in time. Like Facebook might have existed in its early infancy around mm-hmm. then. YouTube was just starting, I mean, it was like maybe an idea. I don't know when Facebook started. I want to say maybe two thousand six. Yeah, okay. Either so 2004, like-
0: 2006. And then I remember in 2005, when I started seminary, there was YouTube and Google Video. And then either 2005 or 2006, Google bought YouTube. Yeah. Somewhere around there, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I mean, when we're looking at the timeline, it wasn't that long ago. When I think about Ron Paul's campaign in 08 and... We were saying Google Ron Paul, you know, to people, we were holding signs up that said that there didn't exist this extensive social media network with the vast ways of communicating, finding our tribes, having conversations that, you know, we could take to the next level and our understanding on all these different ideas. And so it's easy to think about what's happened in the last 10 to 12 years and not understand the weight of this when it comes to how it's fractured the way that people get their information versus what it used to be like. Yeah. And so the big advantage has been that we literally can go anywhere and find any information we want. And there's a lot of people who are like, you know, pearl clutching about that right now. They're like, oh my gosh, the misinformation, we've got to mm. make sure people get the facts. And it's like, because it's a threat. Yeah. you've got to think about this for real though. Like, I mean, you could be super naive if you want and be like, Oh yes, the state and ABC and NBC want to make sure that we have an informed population. You know, like if you're that naive, I really can't help you right now,
0: but (laughs) yeah, right.
1: Right. I, I would like you to consider that this is about market share, that this is about advertising dollars, that this is about control and power of being able to shape opinion to be able to move the direction of society in a particular way. Like, yeah. that seems real easy when you think about it. And this thing has happened when, you're, when you look at it, you're like, oh, by the way, the channels of receiving information and communicating have been totally decentralized, or they were, and it created a problem where, for example, right now, it's like many of the main news programs get three to 400,000 viewers like on a given night, you know, on MSNBC Mm -hmm. or CNN. It's like nothing compared to Joe Rogan or, you know, Tim Pool or, you know, Steve Bannon or all of these very unapproved sources of information that are getting far greater than that on any given night, potentially. And so it's like, that is significant and it's really become exaggerated in the last six to eight years. It's it's so new. And so I, I think that people, number one, don't recognize how radical that shift is in how we consume and trade information. And number two, how on their heels the traditional media outlets and, Mm -hmm. frankly, the state who's used those traditional media outlets, both on the Republican and Democrat side, because it's all about status quo and the establishment, to maintain the status quo and to maintain The control of the narrative has been very effortless going back decades and decades. And now it's
0: a real challenge. It is. When you were talking earlier, you called it a little ranting for a little while. But when you were talking earlier, one thing that stands out to me and is why this is an important point to make for Christian libertarians is that you were talking about the state has sort of piggybacked or partnered with academia and the mainstream media in such a way that. I would call it or leftist theologians, if they were paying attention, would actually call this a new form of empire. And it's Mm. the propaganda slash, you know, indoctrination wing or or plan or whatever you want to call it of the state. And the reason that leftist theologians can't actually see this because they talk all about how the Bible is against empire and imperialism is that they're too busy critiquing capitalism or what they think of as bad markets or whatever. And so they're too busy critiquing capitalism. They don't realize that there's this actual empire very much akin to what the Bible actually literally says regarding the kinds of empires we should be paying attention to. They're kind of oblivious. And the second thought on top of that is this decentralized thing we call the internet that we can get all of our news sources from or we can get alternative, is that what you're calling it, alternative media?
1: Yeah, and on that same Trajectory. Like, think about this. Okay. The other thing that's coming under fire right now is public education. So one thing that happened over the last two years is like, you know, with COVID, like people are like sort of homeschooling's doubled. People were doing like Zoom school. And a lot of people who hadn't previously thought about this whole thing of public education have had an opportunity to rethink it. And it's interesting because this is one of the positives that's coming out of this whole last two years is like, there's a lot of hard questions being asked about public education. Like, wait, hold hold on, what's going on? And, And what are you teaching? And you're also seeing people who are entrenched in public education, administrators and unions and stuff, coming out and saying things very blatantly, like, hey, parents don't have a right to dictate what's taught in schools and they shouldn't have a role. And there's just very authoritarian language coming out for the first time for a lot of people and they're like, wait, what? But when you really think about it, we should see public education from K through 12 or even pre-K and then the university system, that's like essentially 16 years of indoctrination that if those who desire the state and authoritarianism to be okay and to be maintained, that's 16 years of getting people to be trained in that way of thinking and to have their minds shaped in a particular worldview around their relationship to the state, their relationship to social welfare, their relationship to war, all these other aspects. Okay. But then after people get out of that indoctrination of 16 years, potentially, okay. Yeah. And there's some other things you might learn in university that aren't pure indoctrination, I get it. And in grade school. But like seeing that as essentially an indoctrination factory, okay. Then people get out and they're adults and they're like, oh, how do we keep them in line? How do we keep them thinking the right things? Well, that used to be through these mainstream channels of news and information and the New York Times and all these things that are very, you know, hey, these are the official um, respectable places to get. And if you can look at that and be like, oh, no, that's actually just the extension of the indoctrination that the average person's going through. It's like, oh, we need to make sure that people don't rethink any of these ideas when they get into re- adulthood. Well, that's breaking down now yeah. and with the internet and alternative media. And I would say the real win will be when public education is broken down to where people are, you know, seceding from that whole situation in droves To be able to start this process earlier of starting to say, wait a minute, this whole state thing is kind of a fiction. Like, whoa, what's going on here? And so I think that what's happened in media is the breakdown of the indoctrination process of adults after they get out of the public education system. And I will just say that for me, when I started to observe what was going on in the Trump presidency, You know, I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. But when I started to see the way that I saw the mainstream media sort of treating Trump and responding to Trump, it made me start to think that he might be a threat in some capacity to the establishment. Like, I didn't think he was a libertarian. I didn't think he was like necessarily a good person. I just saw something happening with how he was being framed in the media very unfairly, very untruthfully. And then that slid into three issues that, you know, two of which I'm making movies on that I started to see a pattern of the mainstream media sort of silencing certain voices and promoting a certain narrative. And that was when it came into COVID, the November 3rd election, and then January 6th. I started to see a pattern beginning with COVID around the silencing and banning of alternative thoughts and ideas. We could talk about all sorts of things there, but, you know, the origin of COVID-19, the different alternative potential yeah. treatments, the different people, certain doctors, you know, were approved to listen to, certain weren't. You know, you started to see that happening first with COVID really strong, and I think a lot of people saw that. And then I would say, and, you know, in, in my experience having been deplatformed from a couple of social media platforms for starting to have a different narrative on, on both, you know, November 3rd and January 6th, to me, I just looked at that and I was like, Hey, what do these have in common? Like, why are these the three issues? And I'm like, and I know one has got a lot of BS behind it. Like, it's not all false, but there's a narrative that's being supported here. And so for me, I had a big red pill around all this starting in about 2017, moving into 2020 around those three issues. And I just started to ask myself, like, why are these the sacred issues? Why are these the ones we're not allowed to have conversations about? And why is only one narrative allowed in these three issues? And that's, I think there's a lot of people that are waking up to that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially early on during the pandemic. So early, I guess it's Q2 of 2020, we're getting information from the media, from the scientists, whatever, you know, whatever approved group of scientists are allowed to talk to us on television. And even their narratives sort of changed and they had to backtrack and backpedal. And so I think there was sort of an inherent breakdown that made people realize that they couldn't actually trust them. And so there might be like a silver lining to the fact that, oh, wait, I couldn't trust Dr. Fauci because, you know, in March he said one thing, in April he said another, in May he said another. And maybe sometimes those things are actually legit for him to change his mind as, you know, we learn new information, especially on, fine, fair enough. But the way in which it's handled, the way in which the CDC took the kinds of measures or what was it? They They were like dictating that you couldn't, charge rent or something like that. We're doing some things that were like completely out of their, out of their lane. Yeah. So they're like not staying in their lane. Everybody's getting frustrated. We're not getting straight answers. And then when we finally get sort of like half promises, that's like, oh yeah, by the way, we can't do that. We got another six weeks of staying inside or whatever. Right. And people are just starting to be like, well, if that's what's going on, well, what else are they not telling us? Right. And so, it almost opened a way for people to do what you and I have been doing for a good number of years, which is being skeptical of the mainstream narrative and at least challenging it and testing it. Right. And what I know can happen because it happens when people find libertarianism and they go to like what we call cage stage where, you know, it's just like (laughs) everything is (laughs) anti-state. It seems to me that it could be easy for people to jump from, oh my gosh, I can't trust them, to diving headlong into birds aren't real, right? Because, but if you... for those don't know, know what that means, because Jason only newly knows that there was this conspiracy that birds aren't real and that they're, yeah. what what's the what is the conspiracy? Birds are like you know they're actually I think made that by the government. government
1: drones, and it's like oh yeah yeah, and it's like you no, know, that's <laughs> not even that crazy, dude. I mean, like listen, if you want to talk <laughs> about birds not being real, but uh no, yeah yeah. So exactly. how
0: do my the question there behind that before we got sidetracked onto what birds aren't real are is how do you avoid being too far off that in that direction of, like, I'm just going to believe that the earth is flat and that everything is just, you know, that Bill Gates is implanting microchips in our vaccines. And, like, there's a certain level of, like, plausibility for some of these things. And then some things just seem so crazy. And yet, just to wrap the question up a little bit, it's not a conspiracy theory anymore to challenge that the virus, that the coronavirus came accidentally. It used to be a conspiracy theory. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the real question we're getting into, we're getting into some real human nature stuff here because number one, what we are also seeing is that when we as people get ego invested into a position or an idea, like never underestimate the power of having to be right and how that can prevent and blind us from rethinking a position or something that we have been so adamant about. And I think we're seeing this a lot right now with everything that has to do with COVID. And again, like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to think about it. I'm just going to say, I think there's a lot of people who are really ego invested in a particular thing being true, that we continue to get more and more evidence that is showing that certain things may or may not be true. Mm -hmm. So number one as an individual, me and you and the people who are listening, we need to be humble about under our understanding of the world, number one, and also not be too prideful to check our own beliefs and positions and shift those. And if what we need to do is humble ourselves in front of other people and say, I know it's hard. I was wrong, you know, about something. Like, that serves us as much as it serves anybody else. Yeah. And it'll free us to be able to recognize when we're in error. So I think that's one of the, mo- the hardest things is to just get to a place where we're willing to accept that we may be wrong about something. And I think that would serve us in a huge way. And I've tried to embrace that as much as possible in my own life. And I still struggle with it as much as anybody else. But I think that that is actually part of the second thing, which is then discernment, which is kind of a, a thing where you are. So it's number one, check your premises or check your belief system and be like, hey, is this thing that I believe, is it possible that that's not accurate? And the second thing is to be like, okay, I need to be discerning around my my sources. And so this is now where I will maybe differ from some people where I'll say, hey, listen, I'm actually to the place right now where if the state or the mainstream, anything that's mainstream or that's endorsed by the Snopes of the world or fact check or whatever, like I almost dismiss anything that they're promoting Mm. (laughs) as reliable. And I'm not saying I won't come back to that, but for me, I'm actually starting with the things that are being pointed out to me as being wrong or being like, unapproved because I actually think that this is even, I wasn't prepared to speak on this biblically, but like, I think there's a lot that we can learn even from the gospels where you really start looking into the countercultural nature of what Jesus said and preached, the things that he taught and the beliefs and how that they were challenging to the status quo. And like, you look at that and I think there's a lesson there. I think there's a a lesson for us as believers and as people who want to have discernment to say, hey, actually, the majority of people are probably wrong about more things than they're right about. And we should just be, we should understand that. Hmm. And we should understand that it's not like we got to throw away every quote unquote approved source, you know, but we should look at the track record and we should look at what are the interests of those different sources. And so when I look at the news right now, one of the things I, I think about when I look at cable news or whatever, is I, I think about how does CNN survive when they have shows that are getting like a couple of hundred thousand people? Well, the way they survive is because they have sponsors, corporate sponsors that are paying and buying advertising time. And so we could talk about that and be like, well, wait a minute. How come they can sell advertising time when there's not that many people watching it? Well, recognize that many of these traditional channels of media are still very, very powerful. They're still very, very influential. And so then we start looking at who the advertisers are. And, and we, you start going down a rabbit hole where you're like, well, what will these networks contradict the interests of their advertisers? It's just a question. Like, yeah, does it make sense for them to... And who are they really serving? Are they serving the advertisers? Or are they serving the audience? And then contrasting that to people like, for example, Joe Rogan, who I'm like, dude is dependent on, you know, he's got sponsors too, but it's like, he's really dependent on a subscriber base, or at least he was, you know, more maybe before he went on Spotify. But I think about, and, and again, I'm just riffing here, but like, I think about people who are still, you know, they're on YouTube. And it's like, oh, they're just subscriber based. And it's like, oh yeah, there's advertiser money there too. But a lot of those people are funding their stuff through other ways of monetizing. And they're not selling ads to like Big Pharma or Big Defense or, you know, Big Agra or whatever. It's like, it's just a different game. And so I do think that we need to have discernment around where the cash flows are coming and where the interests lie of those who are giving us information. And then we need to be ready to be wrong publicly and change our position and not be too ego invested in something as well.
0: Yeah, I think the gospel connection there that you mentioned is important because this directly goes against the idea that believing the gospel or that the gospel itself is apolitical. Because when you do act in concordance with gospel principles or you embrace the gospel, the good news, it is inherently anti-state and the state doesn't like it. So there's a connection there for everybody who thinks that Jesus wasn't political. That's not what Rome thought. And so to be a Christian, well, for me, as I was kind of learning this, and that principle in and of itself is you're going to mostly hear that from more left-leaning or left-open theologians and pastors and as i was reading and learning some of these things i was like wait a second well the republican party the democratic party well forget parties but like conservatives and leftists progressives they don't speak truth to power they don't they don't challenge the empire they're buddying up to it and it seemed in different trajectory for me but it seemed like in some sense that libertarianism at least christian libertarianism was more in line with challenging empire and its narrative In such a way as to be just regularly skeptical. The default should not be to accept whatever the state tells you. It might be true, but that's not the default assumption, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think something that, you know, I've seen is I am also being discerning about people who have had consistency around some things, no matter who was in office, right? Like, I think personally, I think like Trump derangement syndrome destroyed a lot of people's minds and like, you can have all sorts of opinions about trump but like i would question anybody who's going to tell me that he was somehow specifically bad or worse than any other president that's ever sat in the oval office you know what i mean it's like <laughs> and we could talk all day but about but jason
0: this. he was he was highly indecorous that was that was his yeah. sin
1: right yeah it's like and you know and it's like to, to some of us we're like and thank god he was it's like he basically was like breaking wind <laughs> you know, throughout the hallowed places of government, you know, is like the equivalent. And it's like, you know, I think there's a lot of us who are- Probably wasn't just metaphorical. Yeah, right, both ways, probably. (laughs) And it's like, but it's like, you know, listen, we all think, you know, I think the greatest thing that can happen to high offices is for them to be ridiculed and to be mocked, you know? And I think it's always very powerful. And, but the point is, is that there are many people who bought into this idea that somehow- Trump was like this special type of evil, you know, or whatever. And like, that was all spin, man. And it's like, people like Glenn Greenwald have continued to stand up for some things where he's out there now saying, hey, it's maybe not a good idea to have 200 people from January 6th in solitary confinement for a year before trial and no bail. Because, you know, that could turn around and be really bad if like, oh, I don't know if a guy like Trump got back in and he, you know, had a vendetta against the left. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. some people haven't lost their minds. And it's like, so I try to find people who are still reporting and still trying to tell the truth with all of their flaws. I'm not going to sit here and say, I agree with everything Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi has ever written or whatever, but it's like you find people who have continued to speak truth to power. And um, that's the other thing is, is that, Hollywood and big tech and woke corporate and all of that, like they're not speaking truth to power. And in fact, when Trump was in office, one of the reasons why Saturday Night Live wasn't funny and none of the nightly shows were funny is because none of them were speaking truth to power. Like the left was totally in power and in control over all the cultural shaping institutions. And in fact, Trump represented a lot of people, like it or not, represented a lot of people who didn't think they had a voice. Like we're working class people who didn't have a lot of money and feel like they're getting screwed in America. And so in many ways, a lot of what was happening in Hollywood and media was punching down. And, um, I don't think a lot of people will understand this. A lot of people don't understand that under Trump and now in the aftermath Mm -hmm. that a lot of the counterculture is actually kind of on the right now. And it's Mm -hmm. like, a lot of the stuff that's kind of punk rock is happening over on that side of the political world. And so now you have big tech shutting down like it's censoring. And it's like, dude, when was censoring ever cool? Like that's never been cool. That's what boomers do and parents do. And it's like, (laughs) it's always been us, the cool people who've been like, we're going to be punk rock. We don't care if we get banned. We don't care if we get censored, you know? And so that shift, I think, has happened and is in the process of happening. And and so, you know, I don't even know what the question was we got on this rant, but the point is... Uh,
0: no, there wasn't a question. I just opened it up with a statement and you agreed and kept going.
1: Yeah, right, as I tend to do. But yeah, so personally, I'm very uh, optimistic. I'm very interested in what's happening in this whole world of like content creators out there trying to continue to speak the truth, continue to have alternate opinions. Even if those alternate opinions aren't quote unquote, the truth, we need to have spaces where people are thinking through ideas and issues and discussing them. Mm -hmm. That's not the truth. I mean, that's just like the process and it's like, that stuff's not even allowed. And so it's like, man, we need spaces where people can go through the process wrestling with truth and ideas and understanding is that the nature of everything In wrestling with Jesus and the gospel, it's at the nature of what it means to be human. And, you know, I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. So I I am optimistic that more people are waking up to how propaganda has been used against them and are waking up to the fact that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of ways for them to continue to get that information that is being censored right now.
0: Well, Jason, I appreciate you coming on to chat with me about this. The two movies that are documentaries, films, whatever you want to call them, that you are involved with, can you tell us a little bit about them and where can people get interest? Like, yeah. get, sign up for when it's out there, when finally, you yeah. know, Netflix or Hulu buys it from you or something?
1: Yeah, it's, well, we'll see. But, you know, um, <laughs> the, the two movies are related. You know, in November, me and um, my co director, Paul, we hit the road and we basically embedded ourselves with the guys who were leading the election protests after, you know, November 3rd. And, um, so we just kind of followed around the country, just were checking out what was happening. And so we have a film that we're creating about that, you know, those months and what happened called the steel at the steel.com. You can find that. And, you know, again, it's a documentary, what we found out or discovered while we were on that journey. But while we were on that journey, we had the opportunity to interview the Q shaman, the guy with the horns and the face paint and the fur who found himself in Mike Pence's chair in the Senate, probably the most famous guy from January 6th. We interviewed him in December. And then when he showed up on the internet on January 6th, we had a cell phone number. So we texted him, interviewed him on the 7th, and he was arrested two days later. So we found ourselves with essentially the only interview with him before he got thrown in jail. And he's just been sentenced to 41 months in jail for basically trespassing in Congress. And so we've got a whole movie called Q Sent Me. You can find that at qsentmemovie.com. That is really about the story of January 6th and the story of this particular individual. And through the process of telling that story, we're going to highlight some issues that I think are really important for libertarians and anybody to recognize about how January 6th is being weaponized, how the Department of Justice and the legal system is being used to deny due process. And really, we're seeing before us what it looks like for the regime in power to politicize and prosecute their enemies, something that we wouldn't want to see on the right or the left, and something that people like Ron Paul have been warning about for a long time. And we're seeing the domestic war on terror sort of starting and Patriot Act 2.0 and all these things that many of us maybe have seen out in the waiting in the wings or like, oh, this might be possible. And yet it's ramping up. And because um, it's around the sixth and around MAGA, a lot of people are writing it off or aren't paying as much attention to it. So we're trying to bring some attention to that. And that's the film that we're looking to release here in early 2022. So
0: yeah, check it out, man. Excellent. Well, thanks, Jason, for joining us.
1: Yeah, man. I hope uh, it was informative and uh, I appreciate you giving me a place to talk about stuff, man. You know, I love it.
0: Well, I found you a little bit on your spare time this afternoon. So (laughs) that's what we talk about. All right, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Cool, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.